Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon for you. Yes. So we're talking to Cam Miller of Cam. Is it Cam Miller Films? That's correct. And he has recently produced uh, a real treasure for Reds fans like Aaron and I, who grew up uh, haunting Riverfront Stadium in the mid seventies through the ni- through the nineties. Um, and it's called Riverfront Remembered. And it's being played at Great American Ballpark, the Hall of Fame. There's been, they've already had a premiere of it, but I believe, is there any more showings of it? Yeah, we're going to do another showing here in October sometime. It'll be announced soon. It'll be a low scale event, not as, you know, crazy as the premiere was. But yeah, we're definitely going to do another Q&A and another film session. Absolutely. Awesome. So welcome, Cam. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Greetings. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I, I love the film first off. Mm. I Thank mean, you. Yeah, it, it caught me right at the beginning. And um, I also like that uh, after the first two or three minutes, there there's no spoken word, really. It's just uh, the music and images. Right. I made it uh, intentionally like that um, because I wanted Riverfront to be a character, the main character. And if you start putting talking heads in there, it you get biased, right? And mm-hmm. I, I try to do every documentary film I do, especially when it's with the Reds. I try to do it different. Um, Crosley film was kind of similar because I didn't have a narrator for the Crosley uh, field film I did back in 2009. Um, that was a little different because we just had a bunch of photos that we just, uh, received a treasure trove of, of photos nobody'd ever seen. So it was almost like, how do we do a glorified PowerPoint? (laughs) And we did that. Um, and I composed the music and I, I, I set it to some of the radio calls. So that worked perfect. But with Riverfront, being it a little bit different than Crosley, trying to find a way to tell a story without, um, being so regimented in the facts, but giving the facts in a silent film kind of way, right? So when the scoreboard images pop up, that's your silent film black and white cards, right? When you watch a silent film, it would tell you, it would move the story along um, and then put in there, you know, sound effects, things of that nature. Um, the very, become, very cool font or effect, by the way, the uh, scoreboard lighting. Right. Oh, I, and again, I wanted you to walk in. I wanted you to go into that theater the lights go down, and, and when it happened, because we didn't test the film, we 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 plugged it in, and we had the premiere sold out, packed stands. I had to bring in chairs from the Reds' uh, offices to come over and set up along the bleachers because it was so many people. Um, it was just awesome. And then when the lights go down, and then that intro pops up, you're just waiting the anticipation because I wanted to be. You just walked into Riverfront. It's 30 minutes before the first pitch. And you're going to get a 30-minute history lesson on Riverfront Stadium. How do I cram in 32 years in 30 minutes? That was a challenge. But doing it in a way that made you just sipping on your pop, you got your popcorn or your cold beer, what what have you, and you're watching a film, right? And that was the whole idea behind the the way I wanted to make that film. Yeah, you did a really good job. You're like instantly immersed. Yeah, the way, in it. I won't reveal how you do it, but the way you resurrect the stadium at the very beginning is um, – kind of awe-inspiring you know it was like really moving and the music was very effective throughout it the familiar pa announcements uh, right i should say that you did dedicate it to your father i thought that was really fitting because so many people's uh experience with baseball begin with their father son relationship or their grandmother granddaughter relationship yeah right right (laughs) right absolutely Uh, it was tough um because i i I think i've told the story a couple times but um i had just done my dad had been in poor health um, for about five years. He had a quadruple bypass. Um, his kidneys were failing, but he was doing okay as you can do. He lives up in he lived up in Michigan with my mom, and they were my, with my brother in a in an in law suite, basically a glorified finished basement because they had to be taken care of. Um, 
So having them there and my dad didn't have much going on in his life because, I mean, he retired and then his health problems came. And so baseball was his escape. So watching Reds games um, and following my career was a big thing for him. But I had just done on June 30th, which is, of course, the anniversary of when Riverfront Stadium opened in 1970, of course. I'm on Lance McAllister's radio show and um wrapping up and I'm t- talking to Lance. Yeah, I can't wait to show this to my parents. They're they're the reasons why I'm such a Reds fan. And my dad listened to that radio broadcast and then went into the bedroom to t- flip on the Reds-Cubs game. And that's when he passed away, a couple hours oh. after listening to me. So he got to hear me um speak about his home, Riverfront. That was his home away from home. Season ticket holder, what have you, um, introduced us to baseball through that. So knowing, of course, it's devastating. You lose your father. And then I'm in the middle of making a film about Riverfront, which, of course, poetic enough. But knowing that he got to hear me praise Riverfront and he didn't get to see the film, unfortunately, but knowing that he was there towards the end of making the film, it inspired me to keep going, to keep the deadline, to keep marching forward, because if it wasn't for him and my mom, I would have never been a Reds fan. I wouldn't have been gone to Riverfront Stadium. I, I I just, it was because of them. So all the things that happened, and of course, like you said, dedicating it to my father, as well as other people that were able to write me and email me to say, hey, can you get, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just about my father, but other people that uh, passed on, that they had, you know, an influence with them with Reds baseball and specifically Riverfront Stadium. I thought that was the best way to do it. So I did the old group messages on the Riverfront scoreboard like you'd have. And I just included everybody's name that wrote into me that wanted to dedicate the film. So we probably had 75 or 80 names um, at the end, but it, it worked out great. And it was a very, you could hear people crying in the theater. I mean, it was a very emotional moment for the people that were there that saw their fathers or granddaughters or, you know, grandfathers, whoever was up there, they got to see that family member and up on a big screen. And it was just such a moving and what a wonderful moment that was. I will never forget it. Well, I'm sorry for your loss. I didn't mm. realize it was so recent that he passed, but yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Thank you. It was, it was very, very emotional to finish this film with him in the back because I had to go through all of the things that you have to go through. Um, financially, business of it, end of it with my mom, who was just a wreck. She's still a wreck. Of course, you know, you don't ever get over it, but the fact that she's been strong, she came down to the premiere and I, you know, with my brothers and I was able to point up to the crowd and give them their moment. Um, it was just such a great, great event. Um, that premiere, I will never forget it. It was, you never know with these things. If you put a, out a film, uh, through the Hall of Fame, how it's going to be received. Um, and the fact that it was sold out, standing ovation was just, you know, it, everything I could have asked for. When I think of Riverfront, you think of the players, you know, first of all, you think of the grade eight, the big red machine, the, was it four world series that were played there? Right. And as the memories fade, you forget about how important the building was to you, uh, you know, not just, not just the, the players, but the sights, sounds and smells of the stadium, the, you know, the, the green turf, how, you know, how brilliantly green that turf was, you know, compared to the grass even. Right. So I thought, yeah, the film did a great job of, of bringing that across. Do you remember your first game? I actually went and found a box score for the first game I attended, and it was Fan Appreciation Day, 1978. <laughs> and it went 15 innings, and Johnny Bench hit a grand slam. George Foster hit two home runs, including a walk-off. Wow. And it's like I was just absolutely fell head over heels in love with baseball on that day. Oh, I, I, your first game. Imagine that. How great is that? I yeah. recently – it's funny you ask that because I had always been told or I, I always had believed that my first game, because I have the ticket stub, was August of 78. So 1978. Um, 
it was, you know, I, I have no recollection of it. I was four years old. I, I don't remember the game. I don't know who won, who lost, but I will never forget going up the escalator, hearing the sounds, smelling the smells, and seeing that expansive green turf when it hit my eyes. It made me, I, I was dumbstruck, and the scoreboard, and the yeah. organ music, and the crisp, clean, white uniforms of the players. It just was one of the most, besides going to the, see Star Wars the first time, it's one of those right. things where you're like, this is life-changing. I will never forget this. Impossibly big. River. Oh, just I always yeah. say it's a Roman Colosseum. That's what it reminds me of. You know, when I see the photos, it wouldn't be constructed. It's like the Roman Colosseum. I, I'm just going to say here for me personally, Riverfront had a majesty to it. I know they they refer to it as clunky sometimes, but it had a majesty to, majesty and an awesomeness or an awe-fillingness, if you'll excuse the fake word. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to use that from now on, by the way. I, I, you that, get that's it. Um, <laughs> awe-fillingness. Yes, it's I love yours. It. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, it's just, it's not the same at the new ballpark. Not that I dislike it. It's a, it feels more, more approachable baseball wise. It doesn't have that wow right. to me. I mean, it's a baseball field. Yeah, and you're I, exactly I get, right. And you can see the river, but it's just not quite the same. It's not cookie cutter I, enough. Right. Um, <laughs> or maybe it's too cookie cutter. Or it's not all purpose. You know. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I said in the trailer, and I opened up the film with that. Riverfront Stadium had a purpose. It was multifunctional. It was designed purposely to be – everything was perfect, 330, 404. Right. 375, three, three, everything, color-coded yeah. seats. I, I mean, it was a machine. That's exactly what it yeah. was. And the team was built based upon that. Now, I like, look, Great American Ballpark is fine. Mm -hmm. and, and having worked there for the years that I did, um, it just became so bland to me because it, just, it, it felt like a. It, now they've, they've done a better job. But when it first opened, it felt like I, I could have been in Dayton or Chattanooga or Knoxville. Mm -hmm. No offense to that. But, I mean, minorly, it felt very – this could be anywhere. When you went to yeah. Riverfront, right. sure, it looked like Philadelphia. Sure, it looked like Atlanta. But if you, when the game started, you knew you were at the Cincinnati Reds because it got so loud in there. The fireworks boomed so loud when a home run was hit or there was a victory. Mm -hmm. It just felt like a home field advantage. Great American Ballpark doesn't have that. It doesn't get as loud yeah. because it's not enclosed. It doesn't have that, this is Cincinnati baseball um, feel to it. And I, I don't think you can ever recapture that. Um, the only way it could have been if you would have renovated Riverfront, which they thought about doing in the late 90s. But, of course, they didn't. They wanted a brand-new ballpark. And I can understand that. I can appreciate that. But you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. There was something about that ballpark. It was just unbelievable, the home field advantage that the Reds had. Going back a minute, um, my first game, also 1978, mm. George Foster Bat Day. Um, <laughs> Full-size wooden yep. black bats with gold lettering on them. Yep. Um, we got two of them, one for me and one for my sister. The last I saw one of them, it was uh, used to prop open the hood of my dad's Chevette back in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Those were great. The, the, can you imagine a bat day today? That'll never happen. With, with a full-size bat like yeah, that? Yeah, no, it'll never happen. So many historic things happened there aside from baseball. Yeah. I don't know if everybody knows that Roy Rogers' boyhood home basically was located around second base. Correct. Right second base, you know. Wow. So he got flooded. Yeah. That's according to Roy Rogers. Um. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. And we and we've I actually we went down there with Yeah, uh, that guy's he, known for his lies. Yeah, yeah. He's not exactly what you'd call the most truthful person in the world. But um we went down there when I was working at the Hall of Fame 
um, full time. And before I started Camelot Films, um, we went down to the riverfront site when it was just, you know, a dirt pit before the banks became a thing and before they put all the restaurants and hotels um, and what have you down there. And the home plate was staked out and marked because they were going to put a plaque there, which they, of course, did. And we went over to see where Roy Rogers' house would have been based upon photos and, and if it was. And, yeah, we thought about digging up, see if we could find any artifacts there. And, of course, this was in the early days of eBay. So we were like, yeah, let's put, let's find some stuff and just say it was Roy Rogers' boy at home. This rock came from Roy Rogers' boy right. at home. People would never have known. But, yeah. But, of course, we also went over there and played uh, baseball at Riverfront before it was – that's uh, cool. Yeah, that was awesome because yeah. the staff would go over there and we'd climb the fence and we'd put our badges on. So in case anybody stopped us, we'd say, oh, this is official Reds business, please. And <laughs> we would play, we would play, you know, wiffle ball. And we may or may not have taken a couple of the artifacts of bats down there. I will not, I guess the statute of limitations has passed, but we did <laughs> do some things like that with white gloves, you know, holding the bat, Pete Rose's bat down there and <laughs> mocking him. So we did have some fun down there before that, you know, it got to be a parking garage. Right. I'm glad, I'm glad well, you did. I'm willing to bet that Pete Ross would have gone with you and played. Oh, absolutely. If he was in town. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No question about it. We always thought about asking some guys to go down there. And I, I kind of regret not, um, while I was there, I didn't take it full advantage of that. Like I, I should have shot more footage. I should have asked some players to go down there. Like just have Mario Soto stand on the mound where the mound yeah. would have been. Um, just mm-hmm. get some shots and talk to him. I think it would have been a fascinating documentary just to Pedro Borbon. Yeah. yeah, Pedro Borbon. You could have done, like, you know, the 30-minute thing and... Right. Right. Oh, it'd be a right. future project. Right. Uh, I'm telling you. Well, we, we talked about doing that, um, and I might do that with... Because I'm doing a trilogy. I think I've said this before. Um, the Riverfront Remember Reds, of course, is the big one at the Hall of Fame. And then I've got one that'll come out this fall, which is Riverfront the Jungle. So it tells the story of how the Bengals were part of the story. And then the third one is the, all the shows. So like Paul McCartney, the Rolling Stones, the cool jazz festival, the Cincinnati mm-hmm. Symphony played there. So there's all these little cool things that the stadium had besides, you know, the Reds, of course, and the Bengals. So um, that'll come out next year. So uh, won't be as big a deal as this. That'll just be online as soon as I'm done with it. But the, the Reds one through the Reds Hall of Fame was obviously the biggest you know, the biggest story to tell. And it kind of, you know, it kind of, it was one of those things where I knew I, I couldn't do a whole thing because the Reds one alone was four hours. Um, mm-hmm. And I had to cut it to 30 for the, because, and the only reason I had to cut to 30 was because that's the, the length that you can program a film in the theater at the Hall of Fame. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. It's, then that's why, because that's, after that, the doors open up. It's on a timer. We need the, so the Ken Miller cut. I'm t- well, I, I've been asked that and it's demand. not, it's going to be online. It's going to be I'm hashtag put the- demand, demand the Cam <laughs> right, Miller demand. cut. Instead of Zach release, Snyder, release yeah. the Miller cut. Release the Miller <laughs> cut. It'll come out eventually. I'm not sure how. I've talked to the Hall of Fame about it. We're not sure how we're going to do it, but I am putting the 30 minute version, the theater version online for free once it runs its cycle at the Hall of Fame. So this off season okay. sometime, we're going to put that online so more people can see it. That was very important to me to put in the contract. Um, was that this, be online for free because all my films are i will never i'm not one of those guys it's i i gonna put my films on blu-rays and things like that i just think that you know the people that need to see this sometimes don't have the funds or don't have the access um and it's important to me that this is a history lesson that you would get you know there's no difference to me this is a history lesson somebody is giving you and it should be free. yeah and it should be important yes absolutely well yeah we, we should talk a little bit about some of the other films in a bit um because you are a historian and a Cincinnati historian. And uh, I saw some interesting titles uh, of movies that you've already done. So we'll touch on that in a bit. But I think of the baseball 
uh, events that happened there, they were non-reds. You know, Jackie Robinson <laughs> made his last appearance yep. at Riverfront Stadium before he right. passed. Hank Aaron, Ty Babe Bruce, all-time home run record right. there. That all-star game that opened the whole thing up. Yeah. Really Probably the seminal moment, right? Right. That's the one. And and if you notice, I didn't put that in the film. And I didn't put a lot of highlights in the film. I didn't. Number one, um, I didn't really want to it be to become a Big Red Machine, you know, another Big Red yeah. Machine highlight video. I just, you know, um, and the footage in the four-hour cut, there's a lot of highlights. But all of the highlights in that are done in a way where you see the play happen. So, for instance... Pete Rose, you mentioned Pete Rose getting bowled over or bowling over Ray Fossey. I start him out at second base and I extracted the audio from the radio call. So all of the people talking, the announcers, I took out just crowd noise and I wanted to use that. So all of the noise from the crowd from the actual event becomes the soundtrack to that. So you are living the moment with the fans without the distraction of an announcer telling you what's going on. Pete, uh, Johnny Bench's 1972 home run in the playoffs. Hearing yeah. that with just the crowd reaction, it, it, it's a whole different way of doing it without Al Michaels. And again, I love the Al Michaels call, but change hit the, deep. the change. Yeah. I mean, we, we know we memorize it. it's in our heads, right? But hearing the crowd anticipating that home run, they're kind of cheering. They're, they're up on their feet. You can hear some clapping. And then when he hits the ball, it's an instantaneous roar, deafening roar. And that becomes a soundtrack for that particular clip. And I did that for several clips, 4192, Eric Davis, you know, robbing, even, you know, not even World Series, Eric Davis robbing Jack Clark, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Center field, jumps up and catches the ball twice in a, in yeah. a series. Um, that crowd reaction is amazing. So it was a hard thing to do to extract, extract that audio, but it was worth it. It just made it so, it was just such a great, um, a great way to do it. And again, taking the personalities out of it, and letting the stadium be the character of the moments become the characters. That was important to me. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because the part of your memory, it's ingrained. Oh, right. That right. sound equals riverfront. It equals baseball. Right. It equals Clap the your moment. Hands, you stomp your feet. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Crack Absolutely. patch and roof coat and driveway seal and make it look newer with brewer. Coat. I tried to find that clip. Now, <laughs> I will tell you about the scoreboard things. And if you follow me on Twitter at Camler Films, you probably know this already. I've been doing it for almost a decade now. I get, I was given a, a, a DVD about 10 years ago. We didn't know what was on it. It was, we were going through footage at the Hall of Fame. I'm trying to find some stuff for a project. And one of the guys says, what's this? It says Riverfront scoreboard. I'm like, hmm. We're getting ready to do this 80s exhibit at the Hall of Fame about a decade ago. And I take it home and I put it in and it's somebody had the Werenthal to put the video camera. Now, again, this is 1981, 82-ish. They put a VHS camera, pointed at the scoreboard after a baseball game and just ran the loop ran of all the, the things thing. and captured it. It's terrible mm. quality because it's 1981 VHS. I was mm. able to take that and redo some of the animations or clean them up. And the ones that were missing, I recreated so I have all of those, but the one I don't have is the Brewer Coat. I couldn't, I, I've looked for that forever. And nobody seems to know. Um, every now and then I'll stumble across something that I don't have that I'll recreate. But I have the majority of the 1970 to like, I'd say 95-ish. The later years are a little bit trickier, um, which is kind of crazy to me that the later years are harder to find than the earlier years. But yeah, it's, we, we can't find any of the, some of the home run celebrations that they had in the late nineties before oh. they went over. But the whole era of Riverfront is just crappy VHS, you know, oh. crap, videotape, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. I should have made the entire documentary to look like that, actually. It could have been. Yeah, yeah, the lines at the bottom. Right. Scan. What about lines. like Paul Summercamp, the voice of Paul yes. Summercamp? Yeah. I mean, that, that was, was, oh, when you uh, hear him, omnipresent. You know, 
right. Ubiquitous, right. as they right. say. Right. <laughs> and I remember being at the, a game one time. The Dodgers were in town. And it's, it was sold out. And I got seats. They were actually at upper deck, right center field. My my view was obscured by the, by the scoreboard. Right. I couldn't, you know, it was hung so low. I had to look yeah, under it. That's, yep. That's that was sold for, out. That's a sold yeah. out game. Yeah. They should have put those. Out. They should have sold those for a dollar fifty because they had the top six for like three bucks, three fifty. <clears throat> they should have sold scoreboard seats for like a dollar. Just get into the yeah. ballpark. <laughs> top six it, was my jam. Man. Oh, it was the best. The best. It was electric though. I mean, it was like the middle of June. It was like, you know, races were all fluid. Everything yeah. was uh, on the table. It's not like it was crunch time or anything. Right. And you knew anybody who was in the top six with you was truly a fan. Oh, completely. Yeah, Absolutely. High, you know. Well, <laughs> they're, they're, um, present company accepted. Bunting <laughs> all around the perimeter. Remember to bring out the bunting when the Dodgers would come in town. Yeah. Like, this is a playoff. Atmosphere. Yeah. It's, you that don't have that anymore. That's one of the unfortunate things. And I'm not here to, I'm not going to sit here and bash modern baseball because that's very easy to do. And especially for people like us that live through some glorious times. But there's something to be said about rivalries in baseball, um, that aren't manufactured because that organic. Reds Dodgers. Yeah. There was such an organic <laughs> rivalry. Um, it's just, you don't have it anymore. It's everything has to be made for TV. Um, and it's unfortunate because there's going to be an entire generation of fans that don't get to experience that and what's that going to mean for fandom what's that going to mean for the game i don't know I, I don't know what the future holds for it but this is why we're talking about riverfront stadium 50 plus years out you know um, 20 years since it was you know it meant its untimely demise um it was just something about nostalgia in baseball that is more powerful than any other sport it just yeah. is and it always will be and i hope that Doing things like I do, you know, the film work that I do, I hope that I can carry that on so that then somebody sees it and passes it on to their kid and then their kid sees it, which is why I put it online for free. I want it to be accessible for everybody to know that this existed and this is what really happened. It's not all about the glitz and the glamour and the shininess. And, you know, again, it's such a different ball game now. But baseball is its pure form, especially in the era that we're talking about. There was something <coughs> magical about it. And I hope. I hope one day it comes back to that. I have my doubts, but that's the great thing. The Reds can be terrible and we can still talk about, you know, the glory times because we have them in our back pocket to reminisce about. Uh, one of the things that younger generations don't have that we had was the player stability. Yeah. yeah. I mean, now it goes year to year and I'm like, well, what team guy? are they on? <laughs> right. And Phillips so like the Reds. And I'm like. Absolutely. And I've oh, always okay. been. I know, and I have always been, and I get bashed on this on Twitter quite often. Um, I'm a team building guy. I think the word rebuild is a general manager, president, owner's term that was, you know, devised to um, buy time, and it's a lie. It's based upon a lie because you're always in perpetual rebuild. And I, I use the example: the Reds, it's a struggle, but we've had some good years. The Pirates are a team that I always go to. The fan base of the Pirates, and I have family in Pittsburgh, so I can attest to this. They are long-suffering. They get short windows every now and then where they taste it and it's ripped away. And it's been a struggle for them for decades, and there's no accountability. There's none. I mean, they can roll out these prospects on the hope that prospects are going to save the day when they know that when the time comes to sign a contract, they're not going to do it because they're going to be selling off at July at the trade deadline. It's a perpetual circle, and – it's unfortunate because there's some good pirate fans out there. They're hardcore, dedicated fans that wish they could go back to the Bill Mazeroski days and the Roberto Clemente days and even the Bobby Bonilla, Barry Bonds days of the, the late 80s, early 90s. 
Mm-hmm. Um, baseball changed. When the business model changed, it left teams like the Pirates and the quote-unquote small market, which, again, is another – that's also not true. Um, baseball is a very rich sport. Um, the owners are very, very rich. It all depends on their mindset. Look at the Seattle yeah. Mariners and what they're doing now. I mean, they they went all in. We're going to do this, and we're going to build players, like you had said, um, players that are there for a while that fans can build relationships with that are not just you know rent players or players that come in just for the heck of it on uh to get their money and get out. I mean, it happens. Building a team, which is again, it's hard to do now because of the economics, and it's got to start at the top. You have to change baseball at the top. The economics have to change, or those are going to continue to be the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Reds, the Kansas Cities. Um, it's just it's got to change, and I hope it does. I really do hope that we get a commission. It's designed. It's designed to crush. Uh, I, I know you don't like the term, but small markets. It's oh, like absolutely. I know. I know yeah. what you mean. I got to share a Pittsburgh story. They want you to think they're going to be like the Rays, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but right. there's really no evidence. The Rays are exceptional with player development and right. being able to do that. The right. A's are good at it, but the yeah. Reds and the Pirates have not demonstrated an acumen for that. Nope, you're absolutely correct, and it's going to continue. And, and that what way. are they going to do? Create a a, a mashup of the I don't know the 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 Cincinnati Pittsburgh and Maysville. <laughs> right. Create right. a big old ball stadium right outside Maysville. Right. And then Kentucky can claim it. Cincinnati right. can claim it because Maysville's on both sides. Right. Pee Wee Reese is already claiming Cincinnati for Kentucky. Yeah. Right. Well, right. Yeah. But still. Um. And vice versa. And I mean. You know, we were at a uh, we were at a show when uh, this comedian asked this guy, "Well, what part of Cincinnati are you from?" And he says, "Northern Kentucky." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good. I like it. So, yeah, um, 19, 1990, ALCS Reds and Pirates. You couldn't get tickets at Riverfront; it was sold out. But you could get tickets at Three Rivers. But you had to buy a strip of. T- you had to buy every game. You couldn't. Right. Get, you couldn't pick and choose. Right. So I bought oh. tickets for, I guess it was three games in Pittsburgh. I was only able to go to two. Right. And I had to work the day in between. So I drove to Pittsburgh, drove oh. to Cincinnati, drove to Pittsburgh. The first day, the first one we lost. Then the second right. one we went up there and we made a big banner, you know, made the mistake of unfurling it in the parking lot at Three River Stadium instead oh. of waiting until we got it inside. <laughs> um, there weren't really Pirates fans to speak of. They were all Steelers fans. Everybody yeah. was throwing footballs yeah. in the parking lot. And um, at some point, they they noticed the banner. They they came after me and two of my friends. They let go, but I held on. Got dragged around the parking lot oh. for, for some distance. They burned <laughs> they burned the banner and oh, burned wow. my hat. And jeez, um, <laughs> oh, awful. You were born. In, you were born in Cincinnati. You weren't born in Pittsburgh. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fan. Right. But, right. Um, we let you guys be Steelers I, fans. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, still had, I had a blast. And one of the guys afterwards, he's like, You're a Reds fan. You should have seen what happened to this guy before. I'm like, Yeah, that was me. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the size of church bells, man. I got a hand it to you. <laughs> That's Pete. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he's like that. Um, he yeah, we talked about the yeah. Dodgers. No. And yeah. Pee Wee Reese was in that, in your film, mm-hmm. a clip from the opening of the ballpark. Right. So we got one of them, you know, we got one right. of the dogs. That's right. That's right. Uh, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that was interesting to see that because, uh, I don't even remember Al Michaels, you know, I, I was right. Joe, Marty and Joe, you know, and, I have a sidebar here. I have an interesting Al Michaels story for you. So when the, when the Reds Hall of Fame, um, was being renovated, this was in 2019, 2018, 2019. 
Um, we were completely doing, redoing the Hall of Fame, top to bottom, making it more up to date because remember it opened in 2005. So it really needed an HD update. It needed to be more modern. So I wasn't, we needed new bio, biographies for the videos for the Hall of Famer. So every Hall of Famer gets his own video. When you walk in, you push a button and then this crowd, you know, the, around you becomes this immersive experience. I was in charge. They asked me to write the bios for all of the Hall of Famers. I was like, what a great honor. You absolutely will. Because I do a lot of the writing too, but this was a little bit different. This was going to be the end all in my lifetime. This will probably be the last renovation they do. And this was a big deal to me. So I took it very seriously. So I'm, I am writing all this stuff down. I get a phone call about, okay, Cam, we need this to be done. We have um, a deadline here to meet because Al Michaels is going to be in town and we want him to read all of these bios. So he was going to be the voiceover. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I'm going to go into a studio with Al Michaels. This is like, what? Pinch myself. This is great. So the day comes and it turns out that Al Michaels gets sick and has to cancel. So we ended up, so I wrote the rest of them in Al Michaels voice. So, right. So I, I had to finish. I have them done. I need to do half of them. I scribbled down the next, you know, 20 or so I had left over uh, to do. And I'm in my head, Al Michaels talking. And then when I get there, they're like, Oh no, he had to cancel. So nothing against, you know, Joe Z, the, the public address announcer at Grand American. He filled in perfectly on a pinch and did them all. But I was really looking forward to hearing Al Michaels read all of my bios. That was, that was the moment. I'm like this, I've made it. This is when I've made it. All the things I've done with the Red Hall of Fame, it's all great. But this would have been the career topper. Al Michaels was going to do all the voiceovers for my stuff. So, But unfortunately, it didn't work out. But maybe one day. Maybe I'll get him to do one of my films. Or at least like a telephone intro. Yeah. You know, like something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that, that would have been awesome. Um, yeah, for years, I tried to win um, somebody's voice on my uh, well, my. We thought um, when we were going to meet at Weird Al recently, oh, we'll have a chance to sit there and shoot the breeze with Weird Al for a minute or seconds. two. Right. We'll get him to, you know, we'll take a picture. We'll have him record something for the podcast. You know, <laughs> That's awesome. No, it wasn't like that. Oh. <laughs> no, it was a photo opportunity through a COVID screen. Which, uh, yeah, retrospect, yeah. which was nice. We're grateful but, for it. Was you know, yes, especially since the band had been having COVID yeah. for like the last two months. Right. So Jeez. they were constantly cycling through band members not being available uh, or placements getting, or cancellations. Getting COVID and from Weird Al might have been. You know. Our show, <laughs> that was a story. That would Touched. be a story. <laughs> yes, that's but, a documentary uh, film. Our I show did. was almost canceled. <laughs> yeah. It's apparently uh, being spread in uh, Oktoberfest in Munich right now. Oh, great. Yeah, well, I think I think. Well, I don't want to get off on that tangent, but we might be masking up here again. Surgeon yep. is more virulent but less deadly. I understand. Right, right. that's what I've heard. So it's we'll like see. a really bad flu, but you're not necessarily going to die. You'll just want to. Right, that's what I understand. And like for me, it's um, I am blessed to be able to work in my office most of the time, so I don't go out much because I'm constantly editing films and working. So um, mm-hmm. during the pandemic, and I I, I say this, you know, in a and not in a mean spirited way or anything, but the pandemic was good for me because I was able to focus on more things. Um, I know for many people that wasn't the case. It's, it was obviously terrible, but for me, you know, I was able to reassess things and, and I was able to, since I worked from home anyway, it wasn't like I was missing out on anything. I couldn't go out. I never went out anyway. It was like I'm door dashing everything anyway. I'm working, you know, 18 hours a day editing films and music. Um, I, I mean, you're I, ahead of the lockdown curve, right? I was, I was like, this is nothing. What are you complaining about? But, and it, but the, one of the parts of that was I, I lost some business, right? Because clients weren't able to do, um, some of the things that 
they normally do, they would do on their own, and especially with cell phones being great now, right? People are shooting their own stuff. So, and editing their own things on TikTok or whatever. So I lost some clients, no question. But um, as long as I keep my relationship with, with the Reds, which I've had now for 17 years, I guess, um, I'll, I'll forever be grateful. It's the greatest job in the world. I, I mean, it really is. I get to wake up and play in the history of the Reds every single day. Every day, there's something going on that I have to work on. So um, I can't complain at all. It's just a fantastic, fantastic gig. When when I look at the film, or um, I'm struck by all the different locations right. that the ballpark was proposed for, and some of the same arg- some of the same discussions around that time that we had when Great American Ballpark right. opened. You know, like oh, if we don't build this ballpark, the Reds are going to leave. Or, yep. You know, but those locations, like I'm, I was familiar, I'm familiar with almost all of them. You know, Makatiwa Country Club, Blue Ash Airport, right? Right. Um, Springdale was one of the locations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's just, it's, it's fascinating to think about what would have happened if the ballpark had been put in one of these suburban, suburban areas rather than down on the riverfront right. as the Reds wanted, right? The Reds wanted that. Oh, well, actually, <laughs> Bill DeWitt wanted it in blue ash he absolutely wanted it in blue ash or any suburb but particularly blue ash he was a big proponent of that it was and he sold the team because of that he didn't get his way he sold the team um before they even broke ground so um that changed but of course that changed everything right bob housen comes in and changes fred's history right so again everything happens for a reason um but it wasn't until – and I say this and people sometimes are like, what are you talking about? If it wasn't for Paul Brown coming to a meeting in 1965-66 era, if he doesn't come to this luncheon with the governor and talk about, you know what? I'm thinking about bringing an NFL team here. If that doesn't happen, there, there's no there's no riverfront. And I will say that the, the Reds probably end up going to you, you know uh, New York or L.A. or California – I really believe that this was the one time where it, where a stadium saved the Reds. Um, I've, I've seen I've, some documents. I paused on every uh, newspaper article that, yeah. that was in the uh, – it probably took me an hour and 15 minutes to watch <laughs> to the watch movie it, the yeah. first time. Because so imagine I, watching I, the I, I literally read every, every word that I could <laughs> that I could read in, in, in those articles. Yeah. <laughs> it was very, very, very close. I mean, we were really, and that's why I'm doing the book on Riverfront. And I said this at the premiere. This is just a big commercial for the book. We're going to put a book at the Hall of Fame. Um, that was that was basically the trade off. If I do the 30 minute version, we'll put the book in the gift shop at the Hall of Fame um, because there's just so much to it. Why don't we go ahead and stick our commercial break in here? Uh-huh. Like I was just dumbfounded by the amount of of things I found. I. You're talking to somebody that lived, worked at the Hall of Fame and was a guy that gave tours and thought I knew we were a front stadium. It wasn't until I researched this for this film how much I learned about the politics side of it, which was just fascinating to see mm. how close we came to it being in Blue Ash or yeah. Springdale or Lunkin Airport or Broadway Commons even at that time, right? So there were so many – veers right if we would have went left it would have changed the course of reds baseball because yeah. if, again if, and the biggest one for me is not the location sure that's a big deal but it's bill dewitt leaving and housing coming if housing doesn't come in dewitt's not building the big red machine 
That's not, wasn't his thing. Howlism doesn't come in. We don't win those championships. We're not the seventies reds and we don't, you know, that's not part of the glory. Yep. I never realized how much growing up in the air of riverfront stadium and a big red machine. I never realized how this big brother, uh, specter of the Cardinals were like during the, almost through my youth and and now, but before he knew they were the enemy. He just didn't know why before (laughs) riverfront, you know, it was kind of that way. right? Right. Right, and now the right. DeWitt family owns the Cardinals. Yeah. And at one point, the Reds tried, you know, after they came out of Riverfront and they're trying to rebuild their uh, uh, gravitas, they wanted to be the Cardinals. You yeah. know, Castellini was a, was a uh, minority owner of right. the Cardinals at one right. time. Right. Yep. Walt Jockety. Yeah, Walt Jockety, the GM. I know. Right. We this know is this why people hate the Cardinals. And that's a film. <laughs> that's a film in itself, if you think it's, about it. I mean, you could do a documentary. Yeah, you could do an entire story on the relationship that goes back too long ago i could tell you about things that happened in 1875 when the reds were just coming back to join the national league in 1876 um that had st louis's influence written all over it it's unbelievable how many things we some of it's good some of it's bad i mean there was some some good times in this relationship but there was also some bad things that happened so it's a fascinating story no question it was refreshing to grow up in an era where we were completely oblivious to that crap. I know. Remember <laughs> you know, when they like, were in the NL East and we were yeah. in the West and you didn't have to worry about St. Louis. It was kind of like, yeah, oh, yeah, it's that team that Tom Steve throwing no hitter against. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that team, that team, the Twins uh-huh. beat in the World Series. Yeah, right, right. And Ozzie Smith, con- contis- Ozzie Smith consistently making sure that Barry Larkin didn't win a gold glove or have an all-star berth. It, yeah. was, it just seemed like it was constant. Like, how is Barry Larkin not a – all-star and a gold glover every single year. It just, well, Ozzy Smith's still hanging around. <laughs> Royals beat him in a World Series, too, right? That's right. The Powder Blues, yeah. Pesky little team. I know. Played on, they're, now, their ballpark, their turf looked really pale. I remember seeing the ball, uh, ball games on TV. You could barely yeah. follow the ball. And the, yeah, it was it really is, bad. Kansas City? Um, no, St. Louis. St. Louis. Yeah, well, St. Louis, for that matter, too, had some terrible turf. I mean, think about how amazing. We, ra- we rag on AstroTurf all the time. But of how it damaged players, and it did. I mean, over the, the long haul, AstroTurf was a bad, bad, bad thing. It's concrete. But, yeah, it's concrete. And I, in my film, I showed the steps that it went, you know, yeah. this much, this much, yeah. and this much. Um, it was awful. But they kept changing it. This terrible um, ratio of concrete and gravel to, <laughs> yeah, to it was not rubber good. padding. <laughs> yeah, it was not good um, at all. But the team was built for that. Like, if if they were grass... The big red machine is not the big red machine. Yeah. They don't go get Joe Morgan. Dave Concepcion doesn't Dave quite Concepcion. have that arm to. Absolutely correct. So for every time somebody bashes AstroTurf, I say, I understand bashing it. But remember that the big red machine does not exist if the AstroTurf wasn't not just AstroTurf in the field, the first field to ever have all AstroTurf. I mean, it was yeah. such a unique, unique the thing. First, to see. Uh, the first cutout. Sliding right. box. Right. Sliding pits. Yeah, Sliding pits. Part of that decision, the. Multipurpose. Yeah. That's Absolutely. The, the, the Bengals. The whole reason of this. Yeah. This yeah. Is. They had to have it that way. I mean, it, and again, they were putting all of their chips into the, because when the AstroTurf people came to the Reds said, hey, this is this new thing we're working on. It had been done in other parks and it had been tested in other places, but not to the extent that it was at Riverfront. And they said, let's do it. Let's go all in. Let's just try it. And there was even, and I don't remember if I put this in the film, but it's definitely in the book. There was a down to the wire, like literally the week before um, the first game Riverfront on June 30th, 1970. They were, there was uh, a situation came up where they were supposed to spray paint the entire infield brown. Yeah. So it was a little bit more of a, 
it gave it that, you know, real quote unquote baseball look. And the reason why they didn't do it was the AstroTurf company said there's not a paint that's been developed yet that was going to stay that's brown. They had the white stripes, but they didn't have brown paint yet. They didn't devise it. And they would avoid if they tried that, if they just went to the store and got some, you know, 150 cans of spray, brown spray paint to do it, the uh, warranty would have been uh, canceled. Uh, so, huh. they, so they said, nope, last minute, literally a week before they had talked with baseball and they were trying to get permission. And baseball said, yeah, go ahead and do that. And then the Reds were going back and forth with the company. And it turned out the last minute, no, you, if you do that, we can't guarantee that that field is going to last. So it ended up they didn't do it. And history, you know, is spoken. It's it's it stayed green through its entire. But can you imagine a brown infield? Oh, yeah. awful! That would be funny. That, that would really look bizarre. <laughs> yeah, you know, retrospect here. Right. That, that's going too far to try and, to and, create and an illusion. Done brown, they might have done like it, it, today. I'm kind of surprised they don't spray the infield pink for Mother's Day. Right, with all the, the things they do with you know. Um, Father's Day, Mother's Day, you know, Armed Forces Day, all the things they do. Right, right. And the technology is there now where they could do it. So you're absolutely right. But I do know that I talked to a guy that worked on the Bengals field, like when they would transform over um, Mm -hmm. from baseball to football. And that's a whole another thing. It was just such Mm -hmm. a great thing. It's like that never happened before. The blue seats would move on a railroad track. It's amazing to me. But it took them um, an entire day to get the spray paint off. And put the lines on for football. It was a very, very hard job. And the guy told me, he says, can you imagine? It would take us a week to get that brown spray paint off for a football yeah. game. We would be impossible to do. I was like, I never mm-hmm. really thought about that. But, yeah, you're well, right. Well, they just needed to schedule the Browns for that week. <laughs> to have uh, the Browns on the field. No, 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 no. <laughs> never. I remember in Baltimore, they played some games at their old, their old baseball park. And they, you know, right. they'd be Going for a touchdown and be driving into an infield, you know. Yeah. You can see the outfield. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Those are the days. <laughs> can you imagine that today? Baseball fields that didn't quite make the changeover as best as they could. It was kind of like, uh, you could still see second base, third base, first base, whatever the, however the field was laid out. And can you imagine today players like doing that? Like the, 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 the players association would never allow that today. It just, it's such a different time. Even at Riverfront, you could see during football games oh, yeah. the, where the bases went. Yeah. And that was a seam. Now remember how yeah. hard that had to be because all those were seamed. There was just AstroTurf patches that they would Velcro together. That was all done by Velcro. So they would Velcro uh, patches of AstroTurf in the places. Um, and you could see the seam. I mean, it was clear as day. So imagine how deep that must have been on the field um, to play on it. Um, I, I just can't imagine the pitcher's mound. Um, and I marked the field for the football documentary version of it. I marked where the goalposts were and where the 20 yard line was, where the end zones were. Um, so it's really interesting to see how they did it and where it is today, you know, in relationship with the parking garage there. It's kind of neat to see. I put this kind of like the same style I did with the riverfront where you see at the end where it's Joe Morgan, you know, and Eric Davis at the plate. Like I did that ghostly, you know, yeah, they're yeah. back at, yeah. Down the I did that with Bengals uh, players as well. Like, so you see Boomer and Ken Anderson and Isaac Curtis, and all the Bengals players. Um, I did the same thing with them at the end. So Was that quintessential riverfrontness as powerful for football as it was for baseball. Um, it was still as big. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was yeah. like, okay. Uh, you know, with the Brown grass. Okay. Uh, if the if they were playing the Browns and they had the brown grass, I would say the Bengals play on the brown grass, and then the chant would be 
take them down from the brown. Take them down from the brown. <laughs> you can put a scoreboard yeah, graphic up there. Be part of it. Yeah, yeah. Be part of the experience. Yeah. You have a whole section doing that. You know, you, you down right. from the brown. We seem to go around the like the wave. The whole yeah, thing. Yeah, it would have been a predecessor to the wave. We'll put a scoreboard animation. And I will say the Bengal crowd didn't really – Paul Brown was very – there was a couple of interviews I saw with him when I was researching it, and he was very disenchanted with how it used to be at Riverfront in the 70s. It wasn't um, – it was almost like they were there to see a concert from the orchestra. It was very yeah. polite. They didn't have that because – and again, I think that's not really a bash on the fans. It was the Bengals – they didn't have football, right? They didn't know how to right. behave, and it took them a while, and it wasn't until the jungle – which is basically what this film is mostly about is how it became the jungle, right? How it became such a home field advantage and the story of the guys who are still around who brought the banner in. And I get the, you know, they're a part of the film. They're a big part of the film where these guys, these college kids out of Wilmington make this banner on a white bed sheet that get into their mom's closet that says, welcome to the jungle. They spray paint in black and orange and they take it down to the stadium. And somebody from JTM, the meat company sees that and says, that's a good slogan. So the next home game, I believe, was against the Jets. I could be wrong. Um, of 88, 1988, there's these placards in every seat that says, Welcome to the Jungle. So the marketing oh, cool. literally took a week. From seeing us, some fans put a banner up. They see the banner. And this marketing team, this guy happened to be there that was in the marketing department of JTM. We need to print up 55,000 of these stat. And they do. So then oh, it becomes a thing. I <laughs> wonder if they had to pay Guns N' Roses rights to play that Yeah, song. because that song comes out in 87. And people always assumed that's what it came from, which it kind of did because that's where the college kids got the idea. It's like, oh, welcome to the jungle, Bengals, Tiger. It, it all fit, right? Um, but I'm not sure now how it works with the rights to that because they played it in every home game still. I mean, it's the thing. They, they still played at Paul Brown or Paycor now, as it were. Um, Paycor I didn't know they changed the name. Hey, Core Stadium. Oh, Lordy, Lordy. I stopped. I stopped following football about four or five years ago. Right. It's very liberating. Last night, <laughs> last night, we went to see Bill Burr, Bill Burr at the Coliseum. Oh yeah, I forgot he was in town. That's right, the Coliseum. Yeah, so you didn't go to what's it called now? I don't care. <laughs> the Heritage Bank Arena. Hey, I still oh, go to Gold Circle Mall to shop at Lowe's. Hey, yeah. nice, nice. Yeah, if you're from this area, you'll understand that reference. We had a nice it's over thirty, over forty. Absolutely. We had a nice time. The personnel there, they was really, they were really accommodating. That's another venue that, that I do theater. hope gets. Yeah, right. I, I hope that venue gets redone. They've talked about it. Um, it deserves a new life. The, the Coliseum. That's a oh, Coliseum yeah. is a place that deserves a second chance because it's not. They've let mm -hmm. it go, and it's talked about doing some other things, and it's never really been – it's just kind of there. And I think there needs to be a re revitalization of that because we get some good acts there. Don't question. I mean, there's some good music mm -hmm. acts that come there. There's some comedians that come there. There's you know, um, the Cyclones, of course, the, the hockey team. But I think you could take a step up um, and spend the money it, just with Great American Ballpark right there. I mean, that the closeness of it. Put a hotel around there. I mean, you've got something. I mean, it's just the way it is now. You need, you need to have an arena that can hold um, quite a few people that can bring in bigger acts. And I think it's just a matter of time before it gets done. But again, it's, you're getting into politics. And you know how that works. Well, and there's <laughs> there's some like you know accessibility issues. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Right. Maybe acoustics. I mean, you can't get to the bottom level without going down like a scary stairway. Oh yeah, I know.
in any number of places. I mean, it's just scary. And the acoustics in that place are not great. No, No. it wasn't designed for music. I mean, it was designed to have hockey and to entice uh, the NBA to come back. Basketball, yeah. And it never happened. I mean, hockey did, and it left, of course, the Stingers. Stingers, Another film that I'm working on. Oh, Rick Dudley. Yep, yep. Now, you were down there at the Coliseum, and you probably noticed, and I mentioned this a couple of years ago, or maybe last year on Twitter, some of the light fixtures that are around there, all of them mm-hmm. around the Coliseum, and a couple in uh, uh, the stanchions there uh, by Great American, the only remnants of the Riverfront Stadium Coliseum uh, complex, those those are original lights that were there in 1970. That's the only thing left. There's like four on the Great American Ballpark side. Um, in between two, and then on the other side, there's a couple left on the Coliseum side on the far by the closer to the bridge. So there, those are the only thing left. All the concrete's been chained over, everything you know been rebuilt, redone. But those stanchions have remained since 1968. Wow, <laughs> the Coliseum of Theseus it just keeps yes. getting replaced. Wow. <laughs> that's 54 years, babe. Unbelievable. I know because that's how old you are. Right. <laughs> Thanks for reminding. I'm older. Thanks so, for the reminder. Um, even better that I remind you how old he is. I miss is. Cincinnati Gardens too. Yeah, yeah. that's another place. Oh, yeah. That I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I will say about the gardens that the main reason why they didn't end up trying to save it is because it was so infested Bold. with mold yeah, that it was, awful. It, it was almost impossible. I walked into that place and I almost had anaphylaxic shock. Oh, I'm not surprised. Here's the thing that yeah. Cam's a historian. I'm allergic to mold. That's one of the most historic places it's it was tragic mm-hmm. to me when it yeah. was t- torn down oh, and absolutely i, just, I, I almost yeah. cried i did a podcast uh i did a podcast a couple of months ago mo egger podcast mo egger show and we mm-hmm. talked in this detail about this i had a i still have a film i'm working on um it's about the cincinnati royals the basketball team here mm-hmm. um and oscar robertson of course and of course their home stadium uh, the arena was the gardens so i've run into a lot of problems with the doc because of legal issues because the Sacramento Kings of the NBA technically own the rights to everything Royals. Um, I have fought with them for four years now, the legal side of it, trying to get this film made because I'm not trying to make any money on it. And that's the what the NBA is worried about is me making money off of the Royals slash Kings. I or, get it. They're or they're their... worried about them not making money. Right. They want a piece of the pie. And I'm not trying to make any kind of pie yeah. here. It's all free. So they're um, they're going to hold out for somebody that's going to make some pie. Exactly. <laughs> now, you're absolutely right. But this documentary is mostly done. It's 85% done. I had scheduled before they tore down the gardens. I had this shot that I was working on. I, I'd, I'd worked it out. I storyboarded it. I got the approval and I got the players that were going to do it. We had the a okay on everything except for the gardens people because they were, they didn't tell me what was going on, but I kind of read between the lines and saw that they were getting ready to tear it down. I was trying to get and never could, unfortunately, access to the gardens before they tore it down. I had a shot in my mind of what was, what it was going to be. I had Oscar Robertson in the middle of this empty arena with a basketball and he's on a chair at center court and he's sitting there and he's got the basketball in his hand and he's twirling it around. And in the background, kind of like um, projected is these highlights of the Royals. So you see it on the seats, you see it in the rafters and he's looking up at it and he's looking around at it. A few minutes of that pass, 30 seconds, let's say. And then teammates from him come down each of the entrances of the portals with a basketball and grab a chair and join him 
at on the floor of Cincinnati Gardens where they played. So I had some of the NBA greats that he played with from the Royals come down, the ones that were still living, of course, and they all got down and they all had a basketball in their hand and they're all, you know, talking amongst themselves. Um, and then it cuts to the film. But that was the intro to the film. I had it mapped out. We had the AOK. It would have been the greatest opening to any film I've ever done. And it got nixed, of course. So uh, because they didn't want to tell me, hey, we're tearing this down. Um, because they knew that I'd go in there and try to get footage. And that's all I wanted to do was get footage and sa salvage something of that place. But it didn't work out. So yeah, Last time I was in Cincinnati, it was about to be torn down, I think. And there was a fence around it. But, yeah. Uh, no. It, was, it was still standing, I believe. Yeah, it's a shame. It didn't, and it's funny how the riverfront, you know, um, got such a unbelievable, you know, it was, they broke in the, with programming. It was live. Every channel, local channel carried the demolition of riverfront stadium live. It was talked about for weeks. Yeah. The gardens I went out with it the online out here. Yeah. I was going to say you probably were able to see it, um, on, online out there, right? So yeah. now the gardens. Nothing. It was a newspaper headline. Oh, the gardens gets torn down. And that was it. The think of the history that was there. The Beatles yeah. played there. The Stones. The basketball. Henry. The hockey. Jimmy Hendrix. Was oh, yeah. Right. Def Leppard opened for Billy Squire. Wow. Well, I live right around the corner of it. So from it. So when I drive to work in the morning or come home, at one point you could see half the building was demolished, but you could see the seats and stuff and the stage. Yeah. And I was oh. like, every time I pass it, I was like, right there, right there. That's oh. where. You know, so every, much every Friday night point. I used to go roller skating in like That's, eighth and ninth grade. Yeah, there. they had to open roller skating there. I, so many events, right? And I wanted, I thought about even just doing a doc on that. And I was approached about doing a doc on that, but I decided uh, it was just, I didn't have time. But the Royals one was the big one and it still is. Yeah. I hope it gets made. I hope it gets finished, but good luck. I hope it does. Uh, yeah, I'm really hoping it. We've got a couple more things to try to work out. I haven't given up yet, but they're making it very, very difficult. And that's, I understand their side of it. I completely do, but I don't think they understand my side of it. Um, they're looking at it. What, what's this going to do for us? And instead of looking at it with the glasses on of how is this going to be important to history? Because nobody knows about the Cincinnati Royals. It's just not a thing unless you're a hardcore mm. and of a certain age, you don't know that the Royals mm. were a very good basketball team in the sixties that if it wasn't for the Celtics and <laughs> Bill Russell and those guys, um, we could have had a championship in the NBA here. I mean, the NBA right. all-star game was played here for, for the love of God. There's just so much history that gets washed away over time. And the more people that pass on and don't aren't able to share that story, the more we lose. It's the same thing with world war two vets. We don't get as much of that knowledge anymore because everybody's gone. So now it's just hearsay. Now it's just, you know, well, this could have happened. We don't get that boots on the ground perspective and you need that you absolutely need, need that and, oral history from somebody right absolutely correct i mean okay i'm just gonna say this i did not even know about cincinnati having a professional basketball team right until right. after oscar robertson was on the news talking about how he just gotten an organ at university hospital in cincinnati yeah right right okay see so, exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Where did the where did the Cincinnati Swords play? They played at the Gardens. Yeah, they played they at the Gardens. There. The Mohawks, the Mohawks, Mohawks, the Swords. Yeah. yeah, there was quite a few uh, hockey? teams. Yeah, yeah. Hockey teams. Uh, good okay. hockey teams. Back when hockey was a little bit different than it is now, it was much more revered. Um, the NHL kind of became, you know, like the NBA and like uh, every other professional sports entity. It kind of becomes corporate. But there were some good players. And there were some very good um, – well, even the Stingers, I mean, in the 70s, had such great teams that 
I mean, Wayne, one of Wayne Gretzky's first professional games was in Cincinnati. So it's just, there's all these little things of history that happened at the Coliseum uh, or events. Yeah. The the Cyclones played at the gardens. Right. They did. Mighty Ducks ended up there. Yeah. Yeah. Like six bucks a game to go down there and drink all the beer you could contain. And all the, all the Molson that you could, all the Hootie Delight. What what was the uh, Roller Girls? Roller Girls. They they were selling. I remember they were selling Molson at the hockey games. And I was like, that's just because it's just because it's hockey, right? right? Yeah, you wouldn't get away with that at the Redskins. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Roller Girls, they had you know Roller Hockey or Roller mm-hmm. Derby. Roller Derby. Yeah. They didn't have the rails on the side, right? Like right. you always see on television or movies, yeah, right? They get rammed into them. But so they had a just, they had a really good female following. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And, yeah, and these girls on the side, uh, it was a tradition. It was becoming a tradition. They do Hootie Delight uh, pyramids on the side of the yep. uh, uh, the right. roller rink. That's right. And I guess and they, at some or, point, one of the skaters would throw somebody into the cans. Right. I assume. Right. That's we funny, actually yeah. ended up not staying because I had gotten so sick. From the mold, yeah. Less than halfway oh. through the game that I couldn't even enjoy my popcorn. Yeah, that's one of the things that they really didn't do a good job of taking care mm-hmm. of that place. And to an extent, and I don't get into this in the film or the, a little bit in the book, but they didn't do a good job of taking care of Riverfront either during the John Allen era um, because they knew it was the end of its life, but they just didn't want to spend the money. Of course, the Red's not spending the money. It's become cliche now, right? But it was how true. Long, they how long was Crosley there? Like 50, 60 years? Crosley was 1912 to 1970. Um, it was still, it, and that's another film I'm doing called Finley and Western, which is actually the first film that was supposed to come out before Riverfront. But when we realized that Riverfront was celebrating a 20th anniversary, we, it dawned on us like we had to do the Riverfront film before Crosley. I was like, oh, you're right. Yeah. We do 20th anniversary. So that's almost the Finley and Western film tells you the story of the Reds at that All the corner. ballparks there. All yeah. the ballparks. And that was 1884 when League Park was there changed to Redland Field, then changed to Crosley. So the name changed, but the ballpark area was the same since 1884 to 1970. Didn't, so. it, didn't it like move like to other caddy corner or something? Yeah, they moved the home plate a couple of times. It was where right field was, and they moved it back um, to where it ended up being. And then they moved it back when there was a fire to right field. So I felt all these great photographs of it back in the day in the late you know, 19th century, 20, early so 20th century. So that went, that went 60-ish years, the Crosley yeah. version, and then Riverfront gets right. what, 35, 40? 30, 32, 1970 to uh, 2002. Uh, only 2002. Years. Wow, yep. 32. I took a class on uh, ballparks at, at, uh, at UC. Okay. About, uh, and so I'm really fascinated with that topic. Aaron and I played Sandlot baseball in a league called the Buckeye League, and we played down on uh, Bank, Bank Street, Street. where and the Bank Street we, grounds were. Yeah. I don't know. Do you? I mean, was that the location of the? That ballpark? absolutely was. You played on the park. You played in the lot, which was the first field in 1882 when the Cincinnati Reds. That we know and love today. Don't be told, and I know it's hard to do because this ownership group takes this very seriously. The Cincinnati Reds were not established in 1869. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Cincinnati Red Stockings were established in 1869. Mm-hmm. They are the first professional baseball team. Of course, they have no relationship to the Cincinnati Reds. None. Zero. There's no relationship. It's not until 1882 when the Cincinnati Reds 
become a team in the American Association and they win that what's equivalent to the World Series. So they beat Chicago and they are the champions. 1882 banners should be flying at Great American Ballpark today because in their first year of the American Association, the Cincinnati Reds win the World Series. What was equivalent to the World Series? They're the champions. Yeah. Um, that's the park where you played. That's where the first championship was. And it, I'm doing a film on that too. It's a shorter that's film because awesome. it was only, but. Oh, that is awesome. I'd love to play in there because they had these old buildings in the background. Yep. We had some guys in that league. There was a guy named Hank Barron, not Hank Aaron. Hank Barron. <laughs> Hank Barron. He played minor league baseball and he wow. could just smoke line drives out of that place. And those buildings were there. Yeah. Buildings. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that was a really good park. Right. And that park, um, Became, uh, they used it for the circus. There was all a Bill, Wild Bill's Wild West show. Buffalo Bill would come there in the off season. They had boxing matches there. It's another place that deserves a marker because there was some history there. And it bothers me to this day. And I, they laugh about it now. It's become like this joke with me and the Reds. Now here comes Cam, who's going to tell us that the Reds aren't part of 1869, which they're not. They're not. But to not have a banner for 1882, it's just, I don't yeah. understand it. If, you either way. First, yeah. <laughs> and then they ignore it and just say, well, 1869, they just jump that being the first team. The first team is actually the Braves. They've lasted the longest, which has relationships to Cincinnati because, of course, Harry Wright goes out to Boston. The Boston Red Stock has become the Atlanta Braves over the years. So, of course, Milwaukee, then to Atlanta. But that's our true brother in arms is the Atlanta Braves. Um, but they're the oldest team because they've had the same ownership and it's just continued. Just like the Reds in 1882, they leave the American Association and then they, they're the same guys. They change owners, but it's the same team and they, they keep going and they keep going and they keep going. And today that's the Reds team of today. So it starts in 1882, not 1869, but it's fun to say that we're the first team. <laughs> Well, and um, we are, we do still own the first night game, right? We do have the first night game. Um, that's mm -hmm. true. And we do have a lot of firsts. And don't get me wrong. I mean, you're absolutely correct. We have such a unique history here. I mean, the first team. And as a matter of fact, I can tell you right now. We don't I have live in three Britain. cities. We just have the one city. Right. We stayed here. Right. That's the difference. Um, but I can tell you right now um, that I am in Dayton, Kentucky. This is where I live. And I, right across the river, I can see Grand American Ballpark from my house. Um, we saw Weird Al up there in August. Oh. No, 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 we didn't. Dayton, oh. Kentucky. Yeah, I lived in Kentucky. Ohio. Right. Oh, right, right, never mind. Right. Oh, hey. okay. That's why it's familiar. My, uh, my. Right. I understand that because people tell me all the time. We're named after Dayton, Ohio, so it's confusing. That's weird. If you're going to be named after a town, you're going to be named after Dayton, Ohio. That's weird. But okay, right. we go with it. So I live in Dayton, Kentucky. Now, in 1866, just three blocks from my house, my office, the very first game of baseball ever played west of the Alleghenies by two clubs, like one club against the other, not a practice team where you get a bunch of guys and play, but two different clubs, the Dayton Eagles, which were called the Brooklyn Eagles at that time because the town used to be named Brooklyn before they changed to Dayton, against the Cincinnati Live Oaks, which would go on, to, most of their players would go on to become Red Stockings, right? So in 1866, three blocks down from me in this field house be between a schoolhouse um, and the border for another town, which is no longer in existence, there was the first game ever played. And it was right down the street here in September of 1866. Um, so, and again, that's something I've tried to get a marker for, but they haven't listened to me yet. We, we do celebrate it. I mean, we do post things online about the city of Dayton does do a thing up with it, um, and the anniversary, but it's just those little historical things that always fascinate me because there's so much little history all around us that right. we aren't told or we forget. Um, and it needs to be, you know, we need to take pride in that. Dayton, Kentucky should take absolute pride in the fact that the first game west of the Alleghenies 
you know, New York, they were playing in the 1830s. You know, that baseball, town ball, that all happened in New York. But once you get west of the Alleghenies, baseball wasn't a thing. Um, yeah. The Civil War happens and you start seeing regiments play. But the first match game of baseball was played three blocks from where I'm sitting right now. So um, and then, of course, that made red stockings, of course, from that. We have friends that lived in Dayton and oh, their okay. kids played ball. There's a little complex there right on yep. the river. Right um, on the river, yeah. Like two or three diamonds there back to back. Right. But, uh, yeah, I didn't realize we were on hollowed ground. Yes, it's just a, <laughs> another fascinating – I mean, think about that. That that team plays that game against Cincinnati, and then three years later, the Red Stockings form, basically the remnants of that, that you know, Live Oak team, that first uh, – mostly made up of doctors and lawyers and what have you. But the Red Stockings are born of that. They see that there's there's a thirst for baseball, and Harry Wright is signed, and then his brother George is signed, and then they build this team in 1869 that changes professional sports, not just baseball, professional sports. So right. they become all professional, and it becomes this thing. But, of course, like I said before, next time somebody tells you or you look at the stadium and you see Cincinnati Reds established 1869, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true at all. So, so how are they a completely different entity? So in 1869, the Red Stockings exist. In 1870, the Red Stockings exist. In 1871, they do not because Harry Wright and that team goes to Boston and he becomes the Boston Red Stockings. From 1871 to 1875, there is no baseball in Cincinnati. None. There's mm. just amateur clubs. So 1875 comes, and I have a film about this called Our Shining Stars, which is about the Covington, Kentucky team that had a really good team. Cincinnati didn't like that Covington was getting all the attention. They form a baseball team, again, called the Cincinnati Reds, and they joined the National League in 1876, and they last a few years. They disband, gone no more, completely gone. 1882 comes around and a new team is born. And that's the team that we know and love today. So that same team changed owners, but it was the same club. It was the same. They never left. Um, it just keeps on keeping on. Right. So, um, it didn't disband it. They just kept plugging. Right. So, um, imagine 1871 to 1875, no baseball, right. You had to root for whoever right. you wanted to root for amateur teams and whatever. Mind boggling. Can't, yeah. can't tolerate that idea. Can't. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? Yeah. It was, it was a no different base. game then too. Totally a different game. You, you pitched underhand, right? I mean, such four a strikes. Game. Right. And the bases were different. The, the um, home runs uh, were a, a different thing too. I posted something on Twitter the other day about Ludlow had a baseball team, a professional team in 1875 when Boston Red Stockings, Harry Wright, they were the, the, the best team in baseball, right? Um, during the National Association years, they come, they're going to go to St. Louis to play a game. They stop in Ludlow because they have friends from the Cincinnati days, right? They have friends still in town here and they want to put on a show for the crowd that remembered the 1869 Red Stockings. So they have this practice game, this exhibition game against Ludlow, Kentucky in Ludlow's Park. George Wright steps up and hits a ball into the Ohio River. Um, the first player to ever do that, right? He steps up and it wasn't counted as a home run. It was a double because the fences were so, so short, like 260 feet, something crazy like that. And the ball goes over the fence and into the, the Ohio River, and it's only counted as a double. It's a ground rule double. Yeah. <laughs> brutal. Wow. So they weren't worried about juicing they, the ball or prop, nope. propping up? Uh, no, nope. no, that back. stuff. No were, they, were they called the Ludlow Lobbers? They should have been. They were actually just called the Ludlows. You talk about no creativity. It was the Ludlow Ludlows, and they had white and red uniforms, and they had just a big Old English L. They basically copied the Red Stockings look. It was just an Old English L in their uniforms, um, and they were the Ludlow Ludlows. Uh, there's so much history. <laughs> Back to Riverfront, the two things that, that I wanted to note, the thing I loved about it, and I miss almost 
most of all is that when you got up from your seat in the green seats, you could walk all the way around the stadium and never lose sight of the game. Yep. You could see it from all perspectives. Even from the stands. And if, if you wanted to know, you know, mm-hmm. the new ballpark, you know, Great I mean, American. Uh, the lines. Sorry. Great American is designed for crowd control and it's blocked mm-hmm. out. They want you in your seat if you're, they don't want you milling around too much. Right. Aaron and I used to stand in the blue seats, uh, with yeah. Wildman Walker. He'd be down there running, doing running commentary at the blue, in the blue seats, you yep. know, an impromptu yep. radio show. Get those, basically. get those 350 top six and go in through the season ticket parking garage entrance. Yeah. 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 Let's you out in the blue seats. It worked until about toward the end of 1990. Then yeah, they got cracking down. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and also I think maybe they were more tolerant of kids than uh, you know, we were adults. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. We were graduate. We were you, yeah. you Philip at least looked young. We were in our twenties. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, sure he wasn't getting carted at the movies when he was twenty seven, but <laughs> I was. The oh. other thing is we went to Dodger yeah. Stadium last year and found heard the story of how the seats were colored coded at Dodger Stadium. Mm-hmm. There's a story about the color, you know, the color coding at Riverfront, which we're all right. very familiar with the, you know, blue seats, green right. seat, yellow, red. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it was supposed know. to be reversed. Now remember, uh, and I put this in my film, yeah. it was supposed to be, yeah, the red seats were going to be at the bottom and the blue mm-hmm. seats were going to be at the top. Now it's interesting to think that the reds were like, we're the reds. Why shouldn't it be more red seats? Like it didn't dawn on them until they saw the mock up. They're like, wait a minute. Why is this Dodger blue? It's what it looks like, right? So they changed it, of course, to the last minute. They had to put another order in for so many seats. Um, can you imagine, though, if it looked like that? Like, I can't even fathom yeah. the red it seats at the bottom. Because it's not what we know. Exactly. Right? exactly. That's yeah. that's so true. I, I do want to say one more thing about, like, the player thing. I kind of fell in love with Votto this year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, not that I disliked him before, but but – you know, the you sto- the sh- well, I mean, I'm not God, really, <laughs> I'm, I'm a red devotee, but I wouldn't say I'm a baseball person. Uh, but yeah. yeah. Oh no. He, I don't mean physically. I'm not like, I don't want to marry him. But, <laughs> but you, you mean know, it's been like high profile sister with all his social media walking around and, and you know, he's, he's off. He doesn't have to be there. So to me, I love his baseball fanness that he's there and his love of the fans and just being a fan. Yeah. You know? Absolutely correct. I, I do have, I'll, I'll tell you a quick Joey Votto story. Uh, this was in 2012. So he's still in that before social media, he's still very private, very focused. The baseball game, he gets in his car and he leaves, right? He didn't do anything, stayed at his apartment and that was it. I'm in the dugout shooting some footage for the Sean Casey Hall of Fame induction. And Matt Latos is there, and there's a couple of Chapman's there. And we're watching, it's a firework Friday, we're watching the fireworks. And I go in a little bit early to the clubhouse because I want to get some of the players that are in the dugout watching the fireworks. They stayed around. Most of them used to stay around back then. And they were going to come up to the tunnel, and I wanted to get ahead of them. So I could capture them walking to the tunnel. I wanted a really good shot of some of these players walking to the clubhouse. So I run with this little mini camera I had, and we're getting, I'm getting ready to shoot it. Joey Votto had a dog named Maris, and he was on a podcast recently talking about how he lost Maris yeah. a few years ago. It was Labrador, very, right? Yeah, right. He was such a a beautiful dog. I somebody had opened up. He went to the ballpark with Votto every game. He was a handler had him in the training room. So Votto would just take his dog after the game and go home, right? He 
walk to the ballpark or he'd ride his you know bike or whatever. He lived close enough. Um, so somebody, I'm in the, there's nobody else in the tunnel. It's just me and somebody in the from the inside the training room opens the the door and Maris bolts out. Maris is making a beeline for the field. In my, it's still happening in slow motion in my mind as I'm telling you the story. I run, jump across and grab his leash. He drags me probably two feet, big, big dog. And I, I grab him just in time before he runs onto the field because who knows what would have happened if he would have got out. Um, and he, who, who knows where he would have gone because all of the entrances were all open at that time. You could have went to the outfield wall and jetted. How, who knows? I grabbed him and I will never forget that I put, you know, gave him back to the handler who thanked me and thanked me for thanked me. But I will never forget that somebody said that, yeah, Vado wants you to know that he appreciated what you did. You know, thank you for saving Maris from running out there. I was like, that was to me one of those weird things that happens that it's one of those things that I always tell the story because it's so weird. Like yeah. I saved Maris <laughs> from running onto the field during a random game in July of 2012. But you're right though. When you t talk about him, he's such a different person now. Uh, and I love it. I love this version of Joey Votto. And this is why I will constantly defend to my dying day. The greatest signing the Reds have ever done is signing him to a long-term contract and not letting him get away. Because what he's meant as an ambassador to baseball in this town um, and the fans that are going to continue to cherish him for years later and they're going to say, I was around to see Joey Votto play. That is worth more than anything else. Having that legacy, you need a legacy. And he's the last of that breed. There will never be another lifetime Reds player. Not with this ec economics of baseball the way it stands. You will never again see a Barry Larkin. You will never again see a Joey Votto or a Johnny Bench. Players that played for their entire career with one team. It just won't happen. Yeah. I, I went to one game this year and I, I chose to video, to videotape or video record Votto's at bat, one of his at bats. Yeah. And it, it happened to be like a 10 pitch at bat went full count. He kept yeah. found pitches off. I mean, it was a great at bat. Right. And, uh, just a fantastic, typical Joey Votto at bat. And he, he wound up hitting the ball to the warning track and center. I thought it was gone when he hit it. I thought, <laughs> right. Oh man, I got a piece of magic here. But, right. Um, so that's just what you get with him. Yeah. Every at bat is like that. Almost every, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an anomaly when he goes up there and just, uh, you know, rips at the first pitch and, right. Put the, God forbid he pop up. That would never happen. Right, right. It's you're right though. It's like everything, and from now on, henceforth, every at bat's going to be even more precious, right? As we know that he's coming to the end of just an incredible career, and I think that's one of the parts of fandom, especially Cincinnati fans. I mean, that's all I know, right? Um, I, I lived in Detroit for a time. I lived in South Carolina for a time, so I got to experience different fandoms of different sports, you know, entities. But lifelong Reds, lifelong this greater Cincinnati area. There's something about um, a player that. When when the crowd gets behind him, especially in Cincinnati, it doesn't matter where he's from. He becomes a Cincinnatian, right? He becomes a part of this community and the fabric of this community. And I I hope I'm wrong on this, but I really strongly believe that this is the last of that. Um, there's sure Joe Burrow will probably be here for ten years, you know, for the Bengals. Um, we may get a couple of superstars that stay three or four years. Hopefully, Jonathan India stays for a few years. I do hope that's true, but. There's never going to be another one that has the impact that Joey Votto has had. He Larkin, after Larkin left, I didn't know if I'd see it. When the Reds signed in 2011, I think it was, when they signed him to that massive contract, 2012-ish, it's that that was the best thing they could have done. Because no matter what his production is, and it's going to decline, of course it's going to decline as he gets older. You need the ambassadorship. You need a mm -hmm. Mr. Cincinnati Red to carry it on. 
you need the mayor. You need the Sean Casey's who, again, Sean Casey, a Pittsburgh guy, becomes the mayor of Cincinnati. Right. Right. I mean, it can't yeah. happen. You, it, you, uh, this town then he became the you. mayor of everywhere else he went. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Such a All great right, Aaron, What do you got yeah. for Cam as we, as we um, hope? I just wanted to share my first Bengals game ah. was, was the last game in their old uniforms before they had stripes. Wow. It was a, the Pat McAnally game. Yes. He was, um, he was a wide receiver slash punter. Yep. And uh, he was, he got like knocked. He got his bell rung making a catch and he came out of the game and uh, I don't know probably like the second quarter. He, yeah. He probably had a concussion, but he comes back in the fourth quarter and makes this like 60 yard punt. Right. And uh, yeah, the Bengals did end up beating the Browns. At my uh, first game. Yes, that was a legendary awesome. game. That's a famous game. Yeah. 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 That's Lee, awesome. You got anything for Cam as we let him um, off the hook? <laughs> yeah. Is there, is there anything that you would have other than like your socials and what's coming up? That's Philip's job. Um, <laughs> what, um, is there anything we didn't ask about that you would have liked to cover? Hmm. And I have one more thing after that. Um, I don't think so. I mean, there's so much with Riverfront that I don't want to give it all away. I want people to experience it. So I'll kind of right. keep that, you know, I want people to see the film and of course, watch it online. Um, you something for the book. Yeah. And the book is just gonna be so massive. I got to cut it back. I'm, I'm working on it now. I want it to be done before Father's Day next year. That's my goal. And there's so much in there. Um, but I, I do hope, yeah, it's probably, it might be a volume thing at this point, in encyclopedia. Um, but I do, I, one of the things that I will say about the Riverfront film, the making of it, I will say that because you'll see the film and you'll watch it and you'll, hopefully you get something out of it. But making this film made me appreciate more, um, how important it is to have a fan base that believes in you. You may be awful. Remember 82, we were awful. In 1983, right. we were awful. But there was never a mass exodus of fandom. 2022, they're pretty awful. Right. right. It's, it's, yeah. It's, oh, there's yeah. this thing where if you believe, right now, I think. and you're, yeah. Right, yeah. If you're trusted, if they trust you, if the, if the, if the fans trust your, your position, they will fill up the stadium. And Cincinnati Riverfront Stadium was 55,000. Like you said before, a June game with the Dodgers, they put the bunning up like it's the World Series. You can capture that in this town. I know the Bengals are successful now. Things go in cycles. But this is always going to be a baseball town. It just is. It's where baseball was born. Not just for the Reds, but the players that were born here, you know, that went on to play Major League Baseball. The knot hole. I mean – they used to put the knot hole scores in the, in the Sunday paper from every community from Dayton to, to, you know, the West side. It was, it was a thing. It was so important. We've lost our way a little bit with baseball being the number one thing. And I think it has a lot to do with just the way the ownership has treated the fans here. It's been, it's been more about how many home brews can we put in the ballpark, right? Yeah. And I get in trouble sometimes because I get a paycheck from these guys, right? So sometimes I have to watch what I say. I know, but. I'm one that's well, so, like, so I does ownership the though. They got to, right. they got to say, they can't say where you're going to go. Uh, exactly. Yeah, and I think so. that when the, the reason I bring that up is because the riverfront film, when I was making it, I went through thousands of hours of footage and most of the footage I was going through was a random game in 1985 or 87 when the team wasn't even in the hunt anymore. The place was pretty filled for a weekend or a weeknight. You still had a pretty good crowd and it felt electric. Well, even strike. in the, Yeah. Right. And, and and you had this feeling when I'm watching a complete game from 1987 in September when there are already 10 games out and it's over, um, but you felt the electricity in the air. It was still a baseball game. You were getting to see 
Dave Parker. You were going to see the up and coming shortstop Barry Larkin, the hometown kid. There was something to be excited so about. Right. Mm-hmm. There was something like about being Nolan excited. Ryan rolling into town. Right. Oh, yeah. You always had mm-hmm. something to cheer about. It didn't matter if they it were coming. It comes Dwight Gooden. Right. There was something Kevin about Mitch. that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I do think, I do miss that. And going to the documentary footage and what I did, there was something not just about that stadium, but about that era of baseball that I'm very nostalgic for. And I think a lot of people like, you know, us, we are, because it wasn't just about, we only got one World Series out of that, right? We got 1990, you know, so, but I can tell you right now that all the games I went to as a kid riding my bike, um, you know, the 20 blocks or whatever it was to, to the ball game. I was excited about going to a baseball game to watch professional baseball players, and I was excited about the arena that I was going to. It felt and the camaraderie, exactly. Friends, family, being a part of something. Everybody I don't was think that's now. Absolutely, it was a small community, and that's something that Cincinnati has that no other place has. You can talk about your St. Louis's, and you can talk about your New Yorks and your Atlantas and your Chicagos. When the Reds are doing well, this is a small town community that rallies behind them and has pep rallies and it's just feels like such a unique event and you don't get that anywhere else i lived in detroit for a few years even even opening day you get that even when they're even then they weren't doing well you still enjoyed the game absolutely and you because you were there because you loved it absolutely and that's mostly i I went to my grandmother who was absolutely a lifelong rabid baseball fan ah nice that's very cool i just wonder what norwood would have been like if they put it at Makatiwa. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, wow. It's really going on forever. One of my biggest gripes is the, is the, uh, the void of baseball in the inner city, and it's all become a, a suburban sport, and it's it, wealthy. Know. You have to be wealthy to play it. Your I kids know. are getting treated like superstars when they're yep. nine yeah, years old. Yeah, it's like a, 200 bucks to kit the kid out. Yep. That shit might have been – That might be even more pronounced if we had mm-hmm. one – if the ballpark was out in Blue Ash. I know. Can you imagine? Right. Oh, I know. Which is exactly probably what they wanted. Yeah. That's but, why the Reds wanted it, yeah. Let me ask one more question real quick. So <laughs> you can edit it out. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. No problem. No Ken Brew, and can you get him to be on our podcast? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a Ken oh. Brew fan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, Ken Brew, about five years ago, sat in this very office and interviewed me for a piece on my Covington Stars baseball film that I did. Oh, uh, 2016, cool. I was. So, and we've hung out a few times. Yeah, I will send him a message. Absolutely okay. will. Thank you. Because Absolutely. whenever I ask Philip, who's your big, big get? Who do you really want? And guess what he says? Ken, Kenneth Brew, the man, the Brews yeah. and Bravos. Yeah. He's a good dude. He's a good dude. Yeah, yeah I, I will I message him. Good. I like his, I like the, you know, we're music fans. Thank you, Lisa. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. We're music fans. And I like the way he peppers his broadcasts with interviews yeah. with the, like uh, Mick Fleetwood, right? Yeah, I'm not even sure we'd fully talk baseball with him. We'd Carmen probably do oh, music. You baseball. probably would because he's so smart on a vast variety of subjects. He is a very yeah. intelligent man. I was when I when he came into the house, it, my air conditioning uh, went out the same day. He comes in with his camera to interview me in my office. My air conditioning goes out, and it's hot. it's summer. It's August. It's hot, and he just rolled with it. We cracked wise about it. He's pouring sweat. We're laughing. It was just one of the greatest days with, you know, doing a media event. I, I usually they're like, okay, you know, do this. And it's very, you know, 
professional robots and I've got this amount of time. We sat for a couple hours and just talked about baseball. He told me stories about when he was doing things in Washington, D.C. and Florida, just his career. We just had a blast. And that's kind of how we became friends just because of his – like you said, the music because uh, I'm a musician. So we talked about that and he's just so knowledgeable about so many things. He's more than just a sports guy, right? So, yeah, you'll have a blast talking to him. We, we need to uh, promote your links and well, I used to have a website, but it got to be too much work because mm-hmm. I just – I had so many – Cam Miller Films exists as me. So when you watch a Cam Miller Films production over the last 17, 18 years, it's Cam Miller does the editing. Cam Miller does the script. Cam Miller does the uh, footage. Cam Miller yeah. does the music. And that's the thing. I compose all the music, which takes a lot of time because I have a specific soundtrack in mind when I make these films. So doing it all myself does create problems, but I'm a control freak, so it works out great. Um, but I decided, and of course the business side of it is me too. So, which means I have, I would rather spend more time on the creative end of it than on the business side of it. So as long as I'm paying the bills and the lights are on at Chateau de Miller, that's all I worry about. Um, so what I decided to do was, uh, Cam Miller Films, YouTube, you can see all my films there. Um, Facebook page is Cam Miller Films. And then Twitter, of course, is at Cam Miller Films. And I'm really active on Twitter because I have such a unique, um, following with music and sports, especially Cincinnati history. Um, which is where I, you know, have a lot of people that are interested in, in what I do. Um, so yeah, at Cam Miller, Cam films, Miller films everywhere, pretty everywhere. Much. Yeah. I need yeah. to make that a t-shirt. Cam Miller films everywhere. Cam Miller films. Have everywhere. you considered an intern? I, I actually, I believe did. I know someone who would probably be willing to do unpaid internship for your wow. website. Interesting. <laughs> I'll have to keep that in mind. I have to keep that in mind. It's, it's a thing oh, to think about. Send us the shirts and we'll wear them. There you Aaron's go. Like, no, no, I want that job. <laughs> it's a fun I'm not looking gig. to intern I, anything. I tell you, I get like I said, I get to wake up in the world of Cincinnati history every single day, especially baseball. But um, doing it is just—I I mean, uh, I, are you kidding me? It's so fun. I get to, and when I discover something, I cannot wait to share it. And that's part of my problem because when I'm working on a film or a book or whatever, I have to remember: don't tell people everything. You got to save some for the book. But I have yeah, a problem, so and I put it on Twitter. Like, I'll see something on a Monday morning, and I'm like, I can't believe this. And I'll post it. And I'm like, I should have saved that for the film. But yeah. at this point, you know, it's it's so much fun to share it. And I and I want to keep the history alive. To me, that's the most important. No, re- no reason not to put it in the film anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I do have that part of me that's like, don't give up the goods. <laughs> but you're right. In the book, in the films, all, all the things that I do. Chances are somebody that's watching the film didn't see the tweet. Didn't see it at all. And Yeah, and that's another thing, too. I mean, Twitter is a very, very, very small portion of the population, right? Yeah. So um, you, would, you yeah, wouldn't know no, it. You wouldn't know, know it on Twitter. But what, three weeks ago? <laughs> Right. See, yeah. But there's something about, you know, doing the films that I do and putting them out there on YouTube for free. Most of them, some I can't because I'm con, you know, contract is obligated to a certain entity, but most of all the ones that I foot the bill for, um, like you're not going to see a lot of my red stuff. You'll see a few things clips because I'm not allowed to because I signed a contract that is to the Hall of Fame, right? And the Reds. So Major League Baseball owns my films. Once I make them and they give me the money, it's over. Our relationship's done with that project. But I can put the things that I do in my personal projects, like the Covington Blue Sox, 1913 professional team, the Shining Stars of Covington, Kentucky in 1875, the old Latonia racetrack that was one of the biggest horse racing tracks in the world was right here. Um, there's all kinds of Not little things anymore? that I try to do. No, uh, Turfway Park is, but it used to be in Latonia, Kentucky, um, and it was uh, it was Louisville, Lexington, and Latonia, the three L's. Mm-hmm. 
And now there's a three L highway that runs right behind it. And it's for the three L's because it was the, the racing, you know, I mean, Latonia, Lexington, Louisville, that's where all the, the horse racing turf, was. Turfway still there. But Turfway the still exists. Yep. In Florence sure does. And they took over Latonia when they moved it out there to the suburbs talking about oh, they moved moving it. to the suburbs. Yeah. But when, yeah. once Latonia so, went out, it kind of, so that's not Latonia town. anymore. Right. It's not Latonia anymore. Correct. Um, but I did a film on that and it was really cool to do. I actually, I try to show my films at different venues. I try not to stick to the theater thing. Like it's very prim and proper to me. I like to be low key with things. So I show them in libraries where people can just walk in and watch the film or I'll go to the best one I ever did. Um, is the old Latonia film was shown at an old folks home in Latonia where some of the people there actually went to the, went to the park. That's where I premiered it. I had a packed audience in the basement of this old folks home. I've gone to the park with my grandfather. See, see, and there, there's this relationship, right? And these people had this relationship with the park. I thought, what better audience? And I will never forget this because my parents were there to see it and they were big horse racing fans. So having them see it there in this, in this basement, right? Where you would never suspect a film premiere would be on a screen that they put up on a laptop to show it. And all of these people crying, these people that, you know, are forgotten, right? These 80, 90 year old people that, you know, their days were so mundane and they got to see this film of a place from their childhood. And it was so important to me to show it there. Um, and then afterwards I did a Q and A and the mayor of Covington, Kentucky surprised me and gave me a plaque that designated that day, August the 5th, 2016 is Cam Miller day. Uh -huh. So my parents were in the audience to see the town where I grew up, where they lived, you know, where we all lived. They got to see the mayor proclaim their son camp. It was just one of the greatest experiences as a filmmaker. And the, the icing on the cake, of course, was the fact that all of these people that went to that park in the 40s and 50s before they tore it down um, got to, you know, live, relive their childhood just even for an hour. And that to me was what it what was all about. So I try in to do these things. In years, you can do that with this movie. Exactly. See, <laughs> I can show it at all folks home and we can do the same thing. <laughs> it's a kind we'll, of magic. We'll let you know where we end up. <laughs> There you go. Let me know where you end up, and I'll be there. All right, Cam. Without looking, I think probably the second half of the games have kicked off, so you might want to you might want to get to those. Go check them out. Yeah, just do some chores, do some laundry, do all that stuff. Take the dogs out, and kind of Sundays use my day. Yeah, I knew that we this definitely would be great. love to yeah. talk to you again. Absolutely, Come back on for the book guys. for sure. I definitely will, and I will. Um, I will pass on the information to Mr. Brew as well, and I would love to come back on. We could talk about oh, yeah. other things we didn't get to because there's so much more we could talk about. We have social. Twitter. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Instagram. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Facebook. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Website. www.yeah-uh-huh.com. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week.